0: Welcome in friends, this is mile 33 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast, and we are so happy to have you back with us this week. In lieu of our normal update of recent racing action, in which Ben and I planned on recapping the NCAA Championships and Diamond League competition, we felt this space best reserved for a moment of tribute to Gabe Grinwald. Gabe passed this week at age 32 after a heroic, decade-long battle with cancer. First diagnosed with a malignant mass behind her ear, and subsequently, thyroid and liver cancers, Gabe publicly shared her journey as a story of hope and survival. Through the illness and treatments, Gabe competed at an exceptionally high level, winning a USA Indoor 3000 Meters Championship in 2014, and finishing one spot away from a trip to the Olympics in 2012. Her courage inspired a generation of competitors and serves as a powerful reminder of the gratitude with which we should lace up our shoes and head out for a run each day. May we all strive to be brave like Gabe. It's fitting that our interviewee this week, Brandon Hudgens, conquered debilitating episodes of vasculitis on his way to a sub-four-minute mile and the U.S. Olympic trials at 1,500 meters in 2016. Once a burgeoning collegiate middle distance star, Brandon's life changed forever with his diagnosis and the accompanying physical and emotional trauma. But his years-long comeback and recommitment to running culminated in breaking through the most storied barrier in running with a 359 mile on August 7th, 2015. Brandon joined me via Skype earlier this week to share his experience, the lessons learned along the way, and his current goals. We hope you enjoy. All right, we are going to welcome in Brandon Hudgens now. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How you
1: doing? Uh, I'm doing great. had a really good workout this morning, so that always sets the day up well. (laughs) Besides that, man, been running a good bit, uh, racing, and uh, looking forward to summertime here.
0: So what race is up next on the schedule?
1: Uh, Actually, just officially, as of yesterday, I'm going to be racing up at Princeton on June 30th. Uh, The guys up at NJNY... Uh, the pro team over here the sponsored by Hoka they're setting up some races at Princeton and uh
0: I'm gonna hop in some of those 1500 on the 30th 1500 on the 30th uh
1: and then stuff after that it's kind of up in the air we've we've been playing it uh by by ear this year the last couple years um I guess to kind of work backwards with this a little bit I've was kind of trying to train between immunotherapy treatments. So I was getting immunotherapy treatments every uh, six months for the last, in 2017 and 2018. Uh, My last one was in October of 2018 because either I'm a psychopath or I'm stupid. Uh, I thought (laughs) that I could, uh, after really bad health in 2017 and having kind of the most difficult time with my vasculitis, that I had had since, uh, my initial diagnosis in 2008, 2007, not really truly understanding how bad, uh, my body was at, it was like affected by it. I thought I could, uh, kind of train in these like five month windows basically for, and achieve the same level of, performance that uh, i had been used to in 2014 2015 2016 Uh, of course that was not the case and uh, i got my head beat in in several races and it didn't go well and we were just kind of trying to cram we never because those those immunotherapy treatments set you so far back you kind of have to reset every six months and uh i in retrospect, I think it was the right thing to do still. You know, I, I learned a lot, and I needed to do something. Um, maybe I should have chosen to not try to get in races like the Milrose Games <laughs> and uh, get last place by about 100 meters and get the finish <laughs> That probably wasn't the smartest move, but you don't know until you try sometimes. And sure, this year, after that last infusion in October – We've taken our time getting back to races. I didn't run indoor. Uh, I ran a couple of small low key races. I ran like a little uh 8K cross country race in Charlotte and that was in January or February. And then I uh, didn't do anything again until March when I rabbited some races on the track. And you know, we're just kind of trying to take our time because you you've got to have an aerobic base. You've got to have strength underneath you. Um I've also been dealing with the side effects of a lot of those immunotherapy treatments and the medications I've been on uh, is they they're trying to kill all your white cells and in the process they kill some of your red ones and if you know anything about endurance sports you kind of need your practice. so I've been battling a weird form of anemia um, it's not like most people normally experience it because why would I have that that would be too easy my iron saturation levels are what my hematocrits okay my Hemoglo- hemoglobin is okay, my ferritin is really good, but my level of, ox- of iron saturation in my hemoglobin is low. So I got plenty of trucks carrying iron out to my working muscles. I just don't have a lot on those trucks for some reason. So uh, we've got to wait for my body to kind of reset. And the weird thing about that form of anemia is that it, uh, your kidneys, um, which has have also taken hits thanks to my vasculitis it's one of the organs my vasculitis affects your kidneys are what release that EPO hormone and that EPO hormone is important to red blood cell production so that's kind of where the hang-up in all of this is at so we've just kind of been waiting for that number to get back up that's the last piece physically I feel great my speed even at 32 is is still there I just I've had water in my gas tank for a while. So it's it's sort of frustrating when you do um, high intensity stuff like 5k pace work. Um, I've had, believe it or not, some really, really good long runs, like long runs faster than I've ever done before recently. But uh, when it comes to that really high end stuff, like 5k work, mile work, 3k kind of work, I just blow up and can't seem to recover. And, it's kind of frustrating because, like, you're like, well, my speed's there and my strength's there, but like, this thing's just kind of happening. So, we're working through it, and we're not trying to rush it. Um, we kind of, I, I did some races in May, some good, some mediocre. Um, ran some road miles. I just recently ran a road mile in Yakima, Washington. There's a brand Ooh. new road there. that's part of the Bring Back the Mile Tour this year. We went out there and did that. It was obviously some fantastic competition in that, and it was my first uh, foray back into elite-level racing because everything else I'd done had kind of been more like a local or regional-level competition. Uh, and being back out there with the big boys was a wide-opening, like eye-opening experience again. They ran 352 or 353 at the front of that one, so I ran 403. And I was with the leaders till about 600 to go. So that uh, <laughs> it was a rough last 600. It was a rough <laughs> introduction to to racing, but I walked away healthy and knowing that I'm finally kind of in that ballpark of where I need to be. We just got to start capitalizing on some fitness that we got here.
0: So it sounds like you're you're getting close on the way back. Very very
1: close. Way closer than I've been since probably August of 2016. So.
0: So you mentioned the success you had in in 14, 15, and 16. And in August of 15, at at Sir Walter, you break through 359.67. You become part of one of the most elite clubs in all of running. I believe you were the 448th American ever to break the mile. Is that right? That is correct. For you, though... That journey was so much more than, than what happened in 2015 and so much more complicated, even than those 447 other guys certainly had to put a whole bunch of work into that. But your story, we really have to rewind back to, as you said, 07, 08, mm-hmm. when you're among the best mid-distance runners in the Southern Conference at Winthrop, and then everything changes so you've mentioned the disease a little bit. Could you take us back to that time in your life, what you felt, the changes you went through, and then finally receiving that diagnosis?
1: So that was about a six-month process in between straddling between uh, the fall of 2007 and April 23rd when I was officially given the diagnosis. I was, when this all started, it uh, it was September, uh, my junior year of college. I'd had, as you said, two pretty successful years. My first two years at Winthrop, like every runner, you're never satisfied. Um, You know, I had, I had, I certainly had really big goals at the time and I was looking to kind of take that next step and had a great summer of training and came in and, you know, I had, we had two wonderful runners at Winthrop that were always better than me in cross country probably would still be better than me in cross country in um, <laughs> uh, trevor beasley and brad Orr, they uh constantly beat my head in during cross country season uh, brad actually used to work at the run-in way back in the day
0: brad is definitely a friend of the show we have run with him many times worked out with him yeah great guy
1: yeah and trevor is is from uh greenwood so he was from right around the corner too down there so we had a good South Carolina contingent there Winthrop, when I was, was in, in school, which was always nice uh, to have, you know, some local boys that are part of your, part of your team. And mm-hmm. anyways, I was kind of looking to take that next, that next stuff up as a runner, be able to like put together a good cross country season. Cause I'd never really been satisfied with cross country. I had the best summer training I'd ever had. I'd like consistently knocked out like high seventies, low eighties, uh, and training was looking forward to doing really well. And then the week of our home meet, which was, I believe the second week of September, uh, I started having breathing problems in a workout, like out of the blue and the race that weekend didn't go well. And then, you know, of course you're working out again, immediately kind of the next week. And stuff kind of from there on, just was kind of really up and down. There would be days where I was hanging with Brad and Trevor, uh, (laughs) like where I was supposed to be, you know, and then there would be workouts and stuff where I was literally behind all of the girls, (laughs) which is not, I mean, no offense, we had some really good girls, but not where I was supposed to be. And you're just kind of scratching your head. So, you know, the trainer sent me to the doctor. Uh, I saw a pulmonologist. They're like, oh, you probably got athletic-induced asthma. And I was like, what? Really? They're like, well, sometimes people develop it later in life. And I was like, okay. They're like, here's an inhaler. (laughs) Tried that. Of course, that didn't really do the job. And then within, uh, by October, I was starting to get, like, really bad sinus infections that, you know, of course, I got some ster- like uh, steroids and antibiotics and then kind of go away, get a little bit better, but then it would come back. And it was just kind of hit or miss the whole year. Um, you know, I, I was super excited that year. Um, my brother joined the team. My brother was a freshman. And, you know, I just felt like that was going to be like the next two years were just going to be this really kind of magical time. I was so frustrated because you just – not only are you pissed about not being, like, at your best, but, you know, we had always been, like, fourth or fifth in cross, or sixth in cross country. You know, we really thought we had a chance to finish second or third, and I felt like me not performing at my best was really kind of the thing that was preventing us from getting over the hump. And uh, I managed to make it through cross country season. Of course, it didn't go as well. By November, I was pretty much sick enough that I couldn't run. Running got really difficult. I was, my sinuses were so impacted. And at this point they sent me to see a specialist and he started looking in my nose and was like, uh, do you do drugs? And I was like, no, sir. <laughs> like, do you do drugs? And I was like, no, sir. He's like, are you sure you don't do drugs? I was like, no, sir. I mean, I probably drink a little too much, but I don't do drugs. <laughs> and I you kind of had this like sinking suspicion after you have, I don't know, eight or 10 rounds of antibiotics that something's not clicking here. They started testing me for allergies. Uh, Cause we did live in a, like me, Brad, Trevor, and two of our other teammates, uh, those five of us that all lived in this house, which you can imagine was not very clean. Uh, and it was really, really old and moldy and nasty and disgusting. And, you know, it was just not a clean place. So they're like, well, maybe you're allergic to something that's in the house and I had allergy tests done; those all came back negative. Got tested for Lyme's disease, got tested for AIDS, got tested for mono, and all these things just keep coming back negative. And you're just it. You're and I'm and I'm getting sicker and sicker and more rundown. There, are, all these infections are coming back. Um, by January and February, I'd lost a lot of hearing too, that because I started getting uh, ear infections with all of this. Because when all this starts, you know, all those cavities are kind of connected in there. So it's really easy for those infections to get in other areas. Um, I ended up with Bell's palsy, kind of through the same thing where half my face quit working uh, for a couple of weeks. And finally, in uh, March of 2008, my ENT, my ear, nose and throat doctor decided to do sinus surgery. He's like, maybe if we just go in there and like, try to open you up some more that like all of this will finally just drain out. Like maybe you've got some, a couple of adhesions in here, like maybe from playing sports or whatever, where, you know, maybe it's just hanging everything up and why you can't ever get completely better. So they do sinus surgery. A month later, I go back for my follow up and none of my wounds in my nose had healed. And he was like, all right, something's wrong with your immune system. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? He's like, we're going to run a bunch of tests. And that was middle of April and, you know, about a week after that, um, I was sitting at a track meet cause of course, where else would I be? <laughs> uh, my sister was running a middle school track meet and it's like six, six thirty 30 at night. And on my old flip phone there, I see my doctor's office is calling me and this is long before they did the automated voice things where they call you and ask you to confirm or send you text messages or any of this stuff. Like, a doctor calling you at six 30 at night is like not a good thing. (laughs) And I was like, why is my doctor calling me? And I answer. And it was kind of that, like, are you sitting down kind of conversation? Yeah, I am. And they're like, well, you've got something that's known as granulomatosis with polyangitis and we can't treat it. We've got to send you somewhere to be treated. And they're like, we're recommending you to a guy down at, MUSC, which is the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, that's seen some cases of this.
0: What's your first reaction there?
1: Relief, um, because I had kind of become a hermit too by that point because I was so sick. uh, I wasn't running at all. Running was extremely painful because I didn't know it why at the time, but basically at that point in time, I was so inflamed that all my small blood vessels, so the granuloma is part of uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis uh is it's an inflammation disease and at that point the inflammation was so out of control a lot of my capillaries were basically turned into little knots like this because of the inflammation so my muscles weren't getting oxygen uh which is important for exercise so exercise it was of any type like i i got past Somewhere around this time, I got passed by an elderly gentleman uh, it, that had run <laughs> in that area because where Winthrop sat in Rock Hill is literally about a quarter mile from my house. So I went to college, like literally in my neighborhood. And so I have seen all the people running around there, but the, the old, older gentleman that used to run through town all the time, it probably 10 to 12 minute miles past me. And at that point in time, I distinctively remember that day, like, sitting down on the sidewalk and crying, being like, what is going on? And there's just this feeling of, like, what is – like, there's got to be something else happening to me because I really feel like it's more than me just being sick. Like, I – you know, I've been sick before. This is not (laughs) – this is not just a sinus infection. So when I got that, I was like – it was a relief because I was like, okay, I've got something that I can – Treat. They said I can. This doctor is going to treat me. Well, of course, I went home and Googled it, which was uh, what we all do whenever you find out anything. <laughs> you go to Doctor Google, which is not always the smart thing to do, but it's what I did. At the time, there wasn't like these big sites like there are now, like WebMD and the Cleveland and Mayo Clinic have these sites that are give you super good, accurate information. At the time, I think I was probably on a Wikipedia page about it, I think, Uh, and I got through like the first paragraph, and you're reading things about like a 90% death rate at one year after diagnosis, which I didn't really know at the time was like the statistics from the late 80s um, before they figured out some other treatments that can put it into remission. So when you see that, I just kind of like closed my computer and was like, well, don't want to deal with that. So let's yeah, just see it's what going to Yeah, it was. It was like, that was like kind of the type of thing where you're like, it kind of puts you, oh man, like this, what? Luckily, in talking to my doctors later, once I got to see a rheumatologist uh, who handles like my care, I have a bunch of doctors, but my rheumatologist is kind of my lead doctor and handles my, he's pretty much my primary care doctor at this point. Uh, he's listed as my primary care doctor because even if I get a sinus like a cold or something like whatever the doctor is going to give me he has to approve so he explained to me that those weren't the statistics they were a lot better statistics now and at the time and treatments have changed a lot in the last since I got my first round of treatment in 2008 At at that time the protocol was six months of chemotherapy every day, so um, I was taking oral chemo, which is a drug called Cetoxan, and I was taking loads of prednisone. Um, at one point in time, uh, because my kidneys were shutting down, they were giving me like a 1,000 milligrams of prednisone intravenously every day, uh, which caused me to put on about 15 or 20 pounds of water weight in a week. I had this running joke for a while that I finally put on my freshman 15, the my junior year in a week uh but so you just like you blow up like a balloon you don't know what's happening you know prednisone's a wicked drug it's a, it is a steroid it plays mind games with you makes you feel crazy uh especially in those high doses uh but i actually believe it or not about so i started treatment and after, after i got out of the hospital there we started treatment in may and or june um By about August, I was kind of starting to feel a little bit better because what they have to do is they, the goal is to reset your immune system. So they want to completely wipe it out, kill it. And when it comes back, they hope that it doesn't come back hyperactive because that's basically what's happening is your immune system's hyperactive and recognizing your own tissues as a foreign enemy and attacking those areas. So specifically granulomatosis, polyangitis. Uh, attacks my sinuses, my ears, uh, my throat, my lungs, my kidneys, and ultimately the heart if you can't get it stopped, uh, which is where the fatal part can come in. The the two big dangers with it are your kidneys because if your kidneys don't filter your blood, you know, if they don't detox them (laughs) uh, like they're supposed to, uh, then, you know, you can end up all sorts of health issues that can potentially kill you. And then obviously anything that attacks your heart is never good so everything else you can kind of manage now obviously trying to be an elite level uh, endurance athlete and having had have your lungs attacked uh and have some scarring in your lungs it has probably hindered my performance um, at some level if i'm honest with myself but that's what systems are affected and the treatments aim to reset your immune system so that it doesn't Attack you any longer. Uh, about fifty percent of vasculitis patients experience relapses. I have unfortunately been in that fifty percent category. After I was declared, I was declared in remission uh, just before Christmas of two thousand eight. So they, um, I, I no longer had any B cells at that point in time, and they they declared me into remission because that's specifically if we want to talk technical. Um, there's two types of white cells: your B cells and your T cells. T cells are made famous um, from uh, what HIV affects, and what most people remember but there's also another one and that's the B cells and my B cells are what's hyperactive um, so it's one of the one of the ways that they measure our disease activity um, there's a bunch uh, there's some general information levels and stuff that they look at as well because um, it's kind of a complex puzzle because there's not like a one a one test that you can do that shows that you have it um, and you can have it too without some of these tests being positive but you can't have, like, some of these po- t- tests can't, uh, can't be positive and you not have it, but you can have some people that uh, certainly have it and are showing symptoms of it, but their blood work doesn't show it. That's actually happened to me once, or twice. I actually caught relapses before it showed up on the blood work uh, in 2012 and 2013. Uh, but from 2008 to 2012, after at the end of 2008, so in 2009, basically, I kind of slowly started jogging again. And this is halfway through my senior year. at went through, I was going to graduate. I was looking to go to grad school. Uh, I didn't know really what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to study exercise science. So that's when I reached out to uh, the coach at App State, Coach Kersio, and they were uh, willing to take a chance with a guy that had been on the shelf for a year and a half. And based off of his performances in the past, and they gave me a shot to, to be a part of their program for two years, and I was able to not just return to health while I was up there, but be better than ever. Um, I finally had that cross-country season that I was looking for, and uh, won a few SOCON titles there, was part of two Triple Crowns. there While I was there, we didn't lose. So that was certainly uh, an amazing experience. We won cross-country, indoor and outdoor, the two years that I was there. Uh it's, Being a part of that program has been probably one of the highlights of my life. You know, not just being a part of the team, but, I mean, some my best friend came out of that program. uh, People that I still stay in contact with to this day that are important to me uh, came out of that program. I ended up renting from our, our coach. Like, he was my landlord, me and my brother's landlord, for about two and a half years and he lived right behind us on his property so you know it it boone was a very very special place for me Uh, and those two years to be able to come back from what i had were awesome and i i think a fitting cap to everything that i had been through and it was it was the right place for me to do it in because while i was focused on myself ultimately there we were focused on a team championship You know, and obviously for the team to succeed, you've got to be at your best, but it gave me an environment where I was a little bit less focused on myself and focused on helping us win. And I think looking back years later, that probably was a huge benefit because it kind of allows you to turn your brain off a little bit and be like, all right, this is what they need me to do. Uh, You're not focusing on one thing. It's the goal is to help the team. And uh, I I did that over 800 and 1500 meters in the 4 by 4s
0: <laughs> So it sounds like your brother and your teammates were key people in helping walk through that journey with you.
1: It's a it's a lot of people. Um, stuff kind of fell apart there emotionally. It went through, but I didn't understand this at the time. I didn't. It was one of the things. Years later, I got diagnosed with pain, uh, panic attacks and anxiety issues. I didn't know that those were things that I was experiencing when I around the time that I got diagnosed uh, and during that kind of difficult time. But I mean, to be honest, like I was a kind of a bad teammate. (laughs) It it went through at times. uh, And. I was just an egotistical ass, like there's no other way to put it. (laughs) Uh, Pushing teammates buttons and getting in arguments and stuff like that, I, you know, it wasn't always helpful. It wasn't the right way to lead. Uh, and in retrospect, uh, I could have handled it better. But as things started falling apart for me physically, things also uh, emotionally started falling apart from me. You know, you go through like a girlfriend that breaks up with you during this time because you're kind of no fun, and you know you can't really do anything, and you're really sick all the time. And you know, you kind of end up in these dark places. I was also I didn't realize that they'd given me. of a bottomless oxy prescription at the time without realizing it you know you kind of slip into a habit with those things uh luckily i kind of realized what was going on after a couple of months was like yo i'm taking too many of these (laughs) and kind of squashed that luckily like kind of getting back to running kind of helped me squash that because i was like i i don't feel good when i run on these this isn't this isn't good i'm taking a lot of these i probably should be careful you know, so you're just kind of experiencing a lot of these things that you're not really prepared for. And, you know, nobody's really prepared for these type experiences until they happen. But as far as people that helped, I mean, my family, hands down, was uh, probably the only reason I'm alive. Especially years later when I was having uh, anxiety and depression issues uh, and really kind of just wanted to give up. Um the thought of my mother, when I was, to take a side journey here real quick, My when I was four, my parents lost a child. So she was born with a heart defect uh, with a hole between the ventricles of her heart. She had a deformity on one of her chromosomes that caused that. And there was a couple of times when I really wanted to give up and was, you know, contemplating, you know, checking out that like the thought of my mom having to bury another kid I was like I can't I can't do that I gotta like this really sucks but I've got like I can't I cannot do this Uh, I really want to but like I, I can't do that to my family because they've been through too much they've been there with me through all of this they you know everybody you know that has a good family and comes from a good family feels like theirs is the best but I feel like ours is pretty damn tight they really are one of the best support systems that somebody could ever ask for because you don't get to pick your family you know you're you're just born into it and my mom and my dad are incredible human beings not just to me but my dad is a teacher and a coach and you know my mom was a preschool teacher and stuff and the number of people outside of our family that they've played important roles in the lives of those young people and help raise people that didn't, you know, necessarily have good homes, uh, it just really shows the quality of humans that they are. So I, I really couldn't give up on them. So they're by far the things that have kept me going in life. And uh, every chance that I get, I, I try to make sure that they are Included in on it that they can go places with me, they can do things with me that they feel like they're a part of this. I mean, I'm 32 years old. My parents still travel to my races, so you know, not every not every person can uh, can say their parents do that. And they're certainly it. And then, you know, later in life, um, obviously, my, I've got a girlfriend that we've been together for yes, almost eight years now, and she's been through the thick of it with me. So you know, definitely my family and her and some of some of my best friend, Chris Mo, and that I ran with it at App, like they they all have helped not just keep me on the straight and narrow, but been an integral part of uh, my success because you can't you don't this uh, this sport you don't have especially at the elite level most people aren't given the opportunity to be part of a huge group and have a sh- huge support network so you got to put it together yourself and certainly my family and. My friends and my loved ones are sort of my support network.
0: Yeah, because you can't do it alone. You, you can't make it through that journey alone. And you have a beautiful quote on your blog. If you want something badly enough and have the courage to chase your dreams, you have to be willing to walk through the dark places to get them. You certainly went through some dark places, But you had people there to help carry you through that journey to be part of the success. That is such a meaningful part of the experience because then we we take a step forward, August 2015, and you're cracking the four-minute barrier. What was that night like? If you could give us a little bit of reflection on the race itself. But I think more importantly, mentally, physically, what that was like to you, given the mental and physical trials you had gone through for years?
1: Well, the, the first immediate, uh, feeling was relief. Um, but it, at the time going into it, I had kind of been riding a high, uh, as far as races went and training went, I knew I, I had been really close before. <laughs> and, In 2014, I got, you know, I had run four flat or 401 several times. You know, I'd run 343, 1500. So, but I felt like always when we were aiming to break four, it had, I kind of had to have the perfect race. Well, after I ran 342 at the Furman meet, uh, and it was either May or June. I don't remember what, what month it was in that year. After I ran that race, I was like, and how I felt after it. Yeah. For 1500 meters. Yeah. For 1500 that I, I knew at that time that it wasn't, I didn't, I, I no longer had to have the per- perfect, race that it was going to happen. And, uh, as it turns out, <laughs> I thought it was going to happen like five days later, <laughs> uh, I went up to St. Louis and ran, I think four Oh seven. <laughs> uh, started my long streak of years of getting beat by a high schooler. Uh, I, was <laughs> the race. I was in the race uh, when Grant Fisher broke four for the first time in high, when he was in high school. Yeah, uh, he actually spiked me on his way to a, a sub four minute mile. But you know, you think because just like just get immediately going to happen uh, five days later, because obviously I was on this huge emotional high after having run 342. And I, I thought it was just going to happen right away, but of course it didn't. I had to wait. I think about two months at that stage, but like the workouts, just, I was doing things at workouts that, you know, you, you, you hear and read about, but you never, I had never experienced, you know, it's like you read about like workouts that your, your peers had done or that some of the greats in the sport had done. And I was finally starting to see some of those times on the watch and you're just like, it, it give like, it energizes you. Um, I, I think I said one time, you know, like I really felt like I was kind of riding a wave even though I've never surfed. So I, I don't know why I said that, but it I, I was riding uh, a wave of momentum that summer. And it was perfect that I got to do it there in Raleigh. Uh, I did it on Meredith's track. My mom went to that college. I had worked in NC State's cross-country camps for years. And because of that, I had a ton of friends that are in the Raleigh area. Uh, my girlfriend ran in North Carolina State. So you know, a ton of our friends were out there. My parents were out there. Uh, there was kind of only a handful of people I think that were missing it that would have put it absolutely over the top. But everybody was there that could be there. My coach came down from Philadelphia. He hadn't, uh, you know, with him being in Philly, he doesn't get to, and being a college coach at Temple, he doesn't get to see a lot of my races. And you know, I when he told me he was coming down the day before, uh, cause he hadn't told me he was coming. He told me he was coming the day before it gave me a jolt of energy. I was like, he thinks I, he knows I he doesn't just think I'm going to do it tomorrow. He knows I'm going to do it tomorrow. So it just kind of had this, like tomorrow's going to be the day. And it was, and it, it, it turned out to be a really special magical night. And, you know, I, I, I don't really think that you could draw it up in a, a, a storybook any better because had i actually done it five days later at like that race in st louis like that would have been cool and given me a lot of momentum but i would have been in st louis where i literally knew no one except the people that i was racing with so afterwards i got to hang out with all my friends and my family my parents were there um my friends were there it just it was it was a perfect experience honestly
0: <laughs> yeah uh lopez lemong one of our greatest and most versatile distance runners of this generation says in his book about his journey from lost boy of Sudan to great Olympic runner, that one of the most powerful things we can have as an athlete or just as a person is a dream. And then someone saying, I believe in that dream. You can do that. That had to be pretty awesome to share that moment with all the people who are the ones who believed in you through all the trials.
1: Yeah, it was like that. That's why I say, honestly, it was more a relief at that point in time. Uh, one of my oldest friends, Caroline, so I, I have a girl that I've been friends with uh, since I was born. Her and her husband now kid are, you know, I'm basically his uncle, but uh, she has gotten to know the sport, track, and field through being friends with me for 32 years. Uh, and she said after, she told me this after I did it. She's like, Yeah, me and Josh, her husband. She's like, it was just always this thing that you were just kind of chasing and doing, but you know, it just never seemed like it was probably ever going to work out for you. Um, <laughs> like, that's not what we wanted. Obviously we wanted you to do it, but like, it just seemed like it, pro- it might not happen, especially as you get to that age when you, you know, cause I was 28 when I broke it finally, you know, it's just not, it didn't seem like it was going to be in the cards that I'd probably just been through a little too much. And, uh, <laughs> she's i, I mean there are there some that you know outside of my parents that her and her husband and son are uh, you know fan numero uno's but like you realize like that start realizing like what some of your friends and, and and your family other family members thought about it and stuff too um so when you finally do get to break through it's everybody kind of gets to revel in the success and those moments all those people that were yeah that that saw the bad races, saw the close races, uh, the people that knew that I was working a job there in Boone for three years that I didn't like, but I was getting out the door and training at ten o'clock in the morning and ten o'clock at night, and sometimes in mm-hmm. snowstorms and after twelve-hour days of, of working. So they they knew what I was doing, so they knew how much it meant to me, and you know that's as a as an athlete. We don't get, you know, especially in running, you don't get the opportunity really, like, you just see a time. So much of running is is pure because it is just you and somebody else racing or you against the clock or you against yourself. It doesn't always do a great job of painting a picture or expressing what that time means, right? Because everybody's had trials and tribulations in life and sports. Um you know, this path is not easy for anybody, but, you know, there's a lot more that goes into those times than most people understand or know. And uh, luckily now there's things like podcasts and social media and blogs and the book that I wrote that give have given me the opportunity to let people share the experience with me a little more.
0: Yeah, if, if you could touch on that a little bit so that people who... Are unfamiliar before this with your experience could find out more about you, the uh, your website?
1: www.BrandonHudgens.com. I and guess that's where
0: I'm
1: all things Brandon Hudgens.
0: Yep. And where can they follow you on social media?
1: I am at Behudge nasty uh, on social media, and that is B-H-U-D-G-N-A-S-T-Y. It was my College nickname at App State, one of the seniors on the team, my first year there nicknamed me Be Hudge Nasty. And when I made a Twitter profile, I decided to use that all those years ago. <laughs> now I'm kind of too stubborn to get rid of it because I do think it's kind of hilarious. Because especially now with how much media is done through like social media and Twitter and Instagram. I do think it's hilarious when like these races or even like news publications will like tweet out stuff and they have to use that uh <laughs> that handle in there because everybody else is just like like uh Brian runs or Brian Myler or you know John the runner or, or whatever. It's like they're all just these kind of I don't know cliche <laughs> runner. <laughs> Twitter handles or whatever. So I've just kind of stuck with it. You know, at some point in time, I'll probably change it, but not in the foreseeable future.
0: And I might have to get out there as at seconds flat nasty now. Yeah. And your book, tell us a little bit more about the book.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned my blog earlier. So I I started blogging, I think in 2014. It's something that I haven't stayed up on as much recently. I'd like to get back to some more of it, but I've been doing other forms of kind of getting my, my story out there. But, um, I started blogging around that time frame, kind of just talking about some of my experiences. It was a way for me to, and I'm a terrible writer. Like I, and I'm warning people, I failed English in high school. <laughs> like I got an F in English in 10th grade, but it, it certainly has gotten better just like everything else. It requires practice. But I started blogging about a lot of my experiences and saw an opportunity to kind of share my story with people um, because for years I didn't really talk about what I had been through and my disease and the toll that I had that I had taken and uh, I started kind of trying to share some of that and in 2015 I started getting the, I got the opportunity to start working with the Vasculitis Foundation uh, we started the victory over vasculitis campaign um, which is a campaign that just encourages people to kind of do their personal best every day for vasculitis patients. You know, some days, uh, when you're really sick that, uh, your personal best that day could be getting up and making a sandwich for yourself because that's all the energy you had, or even that kind of wiped you out or the amount of pain that you're in, or, you know, the rounds of chemotherapy or immunotherapy treatment you've had have just zonked you or, or whatever. So, you know, I, I really wanted to do something to encourage people to, not give up on the life that they had dreamed about or wanted pre-diagnosis and putting some good positive energy out there that was also something that was inclusive um something that could lift people up and not just you know originally I started it as this like hey look at me like look at what I can do you can do this too but then of course as you meet other patients you talk to other patients you hear their stories You realize like, wow, there's a lot more inspiring people out there than just me. Like, um, I've I've had the opportunity through my running to to be, you know, one of the main figureheads, but you know, I'm by no means I think the biggest success story. Uh so it's it's highlighting that and lifting each other up. And you know, through all of that, I got the opportunity to uh meet some cool people. And when I was out after 2016, kind of that storybook year of qualifying for the Olympic trials and kind of being one of the best milers in the country, I had another relapse with my health, And I I don't think that it's a coincidence that it was during a high period of stress and I wasn't managing it at all well. Um, and then I was ignoring the signs and symptoms, which is why I got so bad. Uh, but when I was out, I, I had to do something and I was talking to, with one of the, the guys that does um, some freelance work for the foundation. He's like, Have you ever thought about writing a book? I was like, Yeah. And I looked into it twice and it looked like stuff that was way over my head. Because <laughs> if you Google how to write a book, it's <laughs> kind of like Dr. Google, it's just like way out of control. He's like, Well, he's like, You've got all these blogs, like you could probably find some sort of common thing there between all these blogs and write it up and just kind of, you know, use that as your framework kind of as your outline and then expand on some stuff, maybe add some stuff, you know, and that's sort of what we did. And, uh, John Fries and I kind of spent about a year kind of passing those ideas back and forth and put into something that's, uh, coherent and, uh, that you can read and make sense. And that project Uh, turned out to be a book titled Going the Distance, The Journey of a Vasculitis Patient on the Road to Olympic Glory. And it's available on Amazon.com in Kindle and paperback formats. Uh, If somebody's interested in a personalized copy, uh, I do have some of those for sale on BrandonHudgens.com, actually. So I can sign it
0: write whatever you want to it cool we will link all that stuff in the show notes we appreciate that and uh one other follow-up on that where can people learn more about the vasculitis foundation the work you're doing there and how they could give
1: they so if you go to um the vasculitis uh so that's just www.vasculitisfoundation.org uh, or if you just google vasculitis foundation you'll find it there's a giant donate button uh, on the on the page there it's the calls like i, I race with the foundations logo uh on not only because they're somebody that i work with and uh, kind of have a sponsorship with or whatever but they're uh, somebody that i'm going to be involved with for the rest of my life um we our disease only has one foundation and because we are a rare disease you know it it is a disease that uh, affects about one in 200,000 people. It's not uh, a one in five or one in three, like something like cancer is. So we don't have the research dollars. We don't have the resources uh, that we have to, that we need to make treatments and make patients' lives easier and better. Everything that we do is a lot of times piggybacked off other things. Um, For instance, like the immunotherapy treatment that I took, uh and for the first time in 2013 and then just finally got uh approval for uh by the fda for own label use for this uh the immunotherapy treatment was actually developed for lupus so you know we don't have the amount of money to pour into into research and stuff like that so the the foundation you know does their best to give research money where they can and they also spend a lot of uh, of our resources uh with continuing education programs for doctors, because there's so many doctors that don't understand a lot about the disease, don't know a lot about the disease, don't know what they're looking at. And that's why it takes, you know, unfortunately, my time of about six months of diagnosis is about normal. Uh, there's a lot of patients that I know that went two or three years before being diagnosed. If you happen, I mean, because you don't, Especially if you're in rural America, you only ha- you might only have one ENT or one hospital in your area. You don't have the option of, of getting to a bigger system where there's going to be a doctor that might have had experience with it. So oftentimes, I, I've also been a frequent, thanks to all of my, not just health issues, but lifestyle choices at times. I've, I've, I've gone to the ER a few times in my day. Uh, uh, you turn it turns into a circus because they're like, oh, I read about this in a book one time 15 years ago in med school. I hadn't seen anything like this. Like, tell me about it. And so you kind of your, – your door at the ER of the hospital turns into kind of like this revolving door of people coming in and out. But there's just – that. that's the thing is there's a lot of doctors that saw it once in a, in, a, in a textbook, and they don't know to look for it. They don't know what the signs and symptoms are, and it's an incredibly complicated disease the foundation does a lot of work in getting continual education materials in doctor's hands and in front of doctors, you know, sort of the old fashioned way, just literally putting stuff in envelopes and sending them places. Um, they give us materials. Um, anybody can print those materials off on their, on their website and give them to their doctors, uh, so that they're up to date on the latest, on the latest research, um, on the latest treatment methods. And honestly, like, because our disease is so rare a lot of times you don't look sick people say really like people would say really weird things to me especially when I've been on prednisone and I've gotten thicker they like oh you don't look sick you actually look great you finally filled out like (laughs) it's like meanwhile you're just like well I about lost my kidneys a week ago I'm not actually doing very good at all and they're like well you can't be really that bad like are you really that sick like you look fine you know so people kind of say some rude things to you sometimes and it sort of isolates you and it's why I didn't talk about it a lot early on and when that stuff starts happening it kind of shuts you down and when I got involved with the foundation it gave me the opportunity to talk with other patients and after going to the international symposium two summers ago I met a few people there that are now some of my closest confidants we don't necessarily talk every day but the four of us as as young adults patients that have been through vasculitis and been through kind of some similar stuff uh you kind of hit it off and realize that you've got a lot of the same experiences and um no matter how much a loved one a girlfriend a best friend your family no matter how much they've been through with you they don't understand what it's like to be on this side of the fence and to have those people in my corner when stuff has been kind of tough over the last year uh, has been a life enhancer honestly it's
0: just it's it's made life a lot
1: more enjoyable uh it, it's been encouraging
0: very neat um, let's wrap up with the bell lap just a few quick questions for you here first things that come to mind favorite workout Ooh, well
1: as a miler your favorite thing to always do is 200s <laughs> <laughs> any number of 200s is always a great number but um honestly my favorite workout is and it's kind of my coaches and I, i'm sure he got it from somewhere too but thousand meter breakdowns and i, I say he got it somewhere i know a lot of people who do it uh it's probably my favorite workout it's sets of 500 300 200 uh short rest between the 500 and the 300 and the 300 200 somewhere about a minute uh, and then you take like a 400 jog between the sets. So uh, that's my favorite workout.
0: Yep, for sure. A, cl- a classic. Yeah. What, what shoes are you training in right now?
1: Training shoe right now uh, is the Skechers Go Ride 7. I got signed by them in 2016 and dropped in 20, at the end of 2018, but still got a few pairs left. Um, I Actually, re- it's probably my second favorite shoe of all time. What's number one? The Pegasus 30.
0: Okay. That was a good
1: <laughs> Yeah, that, that shoe, man. There's something about that shoe. They should have never changed it. When they they <laughs> got it right, right then, and they should have never changed it.
0: You finish a race, what's the first craving you have after? Pizza. Pizza? What kind of topics? Pepperoni. Okay. Got a favorite pizza spot?
1: Uh, right now, we got a spot here in town called Elizabeth's Pizza. It's the best pizza I've
0: had outside of New York City. Oh, okay. So if people come to visit, go to Elizabeth's.
1: Yeah, and it's like you walk into the, the, the restaurant there and I think you're catapulted back to about 1989, 1992 with the booths and how everything's set up. It's, uh, and it's not, desi- it's not like a hipster design like that. It's just like been like that and they're not changing it. And on top of all that, it's like $11 uh, for a large pizza, and it's really, really good. So
0: it it is my guilty pleasure, for sure. Last thing, your piece of advice for the runner facing a challenge or even just the person facing that personal challenge in their life. What's the biggest thing you can give from your experience to help guide that person through to the other side?
1: Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Uh, And I know that's probably a gross oversimplification of stuff. But things will get better. And if you take a deep breath, take things one step at a time, you're going to eventually get where you want to be. And I've been guilty of this far too many times. Uh, White knuckling it and trying to force it just makes things worse. And it's science now is showing how that type of attitude is actually bad. So uh, take a deep breath. Things are going to get better. Um, if you're injured, don't come back too quickly. We all, we've all fall fallen victim to, to that far too many times. Uh, I, as somebody that also coaches, you know, I tell my athletes this all the time uh, and this has actually made me a better athlete when I had to tell my, Like I started having to tell people this all the time and was like, you don't listen to this advice yourself. Like you need to start doing that. But better a day or two now than six or eight weeks down the road. Um, Absolutely. And and when you think you're ready to start running again, take another day.
0: (laughs) I've I've used that exact line with (laughs) with athletes. I coach. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, though. It's so hard when you're living through it to have that perspective and realizing that it's going to be okay. But yeah, uh, it, it typically you're right. It is. And and I love a, a quote from Chip Kelly, football coach at UCLA now who used to be at Oregon yeah. and and they had a very process oriented approach of simply win the day. What yeah. can I do to control this day? Because it's too much to try to control the next X number of years in our lives.
1: Yeah. One day, one run, one mile, one step at a time. Um, that's really all you have control over. And uh, Donnie Cowart and I were actually discussing this today, um, who I worked out with. And Donnie and I go way back to our freshman year. He was at VMI uh, when I was at Winthrop. And so we were in the same conference. And so we've been racing each other now almost 14 years. So, and now we've got the opportunity to train together. Donnie's one of the best duple chasers in the country uh so we were hammering stuff out at the end of the day and I was telling him like how like at 32 now like I never thought I would wait a week till after I ran a race to work out again but you've got to listen to your body and we were just kind of both reminiscing a lot about the mistakes that we'd make like trying to press you know and you got to listen to your body um because so much of like we were both like right before our last rep we were both like all right like this is these are the money reps right here like this is where you know we've got you know we got to execute you know you're just saying all those same things cuz like you know these are where teams are made these are where PRs are you know you're just saying this stuff to jack yourself up as you're really really tired and trying to you know hit those last splits in the workout and that's so much of our attitude as athletes is go 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 go, go harder go more uh, but especially as you get older, uh, your body doesn't bounce like it used to.
0: So you got to you have to be wise. Beautifully said. Brandon, we're going to be rooting for you, man. Uh, looking forward to see Thanks. how the, the, the summer track season goes. And you are certainly a testament to the patience and faith and determination that it takes to be a successful athlete in person. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Travis. It has been our pleasure. That's all for Mile 33 and the second installment of our Finding Meaning Through Running series. Please, as always, reach out with any comments or questions, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, and we really loved having some podcast listeners join our group run this past week. So remember, Wednesday evenings at 530 from Run-In in Greenville, love to have you with us. Thanks again to Brandon Hudgens for his time and we will see you next time for mile 34 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Take care.